Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to the Growing Band Director podcast. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Our mission is to share practical advice and explore topics that will help every band director, no matter your experience level, as well as music education students who are working to join us in the coming years. Together, we will discuss many aspects of a well-rounded band program, but most importantly, we will discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs each and every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're right, you rot. Let's get started. So you've given us a lot of information to help out with winter percussion. So now some technical questions. What do you think should be the basic instrumentation of a front ensemble? I know it's based on the number of kids you have, but say a younger group, a beginning group. If you're just starting off and you're not, and your goal is not to go out and be competitive and, and you know, win your local championship, you, you want to make sure you have, I would say at minimum, a marimba, a vibe, and, and, a, and a set of bells. If you can, a marimba, a vibe, a xylo, and a bells. The more you can get, the better. But I know, you know, not every school has a luxury like we do to have six marimbas and six vibes and everything like that. So start off with whatever you can get and then add a little bit every year. Um, you know, you want to maybe you want to use timpani. You want maybe you want to use chimes. Maybe you want to have an auxiliary uh, rack player with some instruments set up. So it, it really comes down to what you have available to you at school and make the most of it how about instrumentation of the battery i think i think that becomes a very hard subject for people to broach like snares toms flubs basses cymbals a lot of that comes down to personal preference and also balancing the ensemble um you know you would not want to have six bass drums with with one snare drummer because it wouldn't balance out the sound very well so ideally, you want to make sure acoustically you're balancing out the sound from the battery ensemble the same way you would from the front ensemble. You wouldn't want to have, uh, you know, all bells and xylophone in one marimba player because it's going to be unbalanced. Not that anybody would do that, but you always want to make sure you're balancing out your group and considering the ability of your of your students. And, you know, now people use flubs a lot, which is just a single tom, and that's a great way a stepping stone from maybe bass drum to then one of the flat drums, either a quad or a snare, because they get, you know, a little bit more to play than maybe they would on bass drum. And it's a good way to add another voice to the battery as well. But in terms of, of instrumentation and numbers, it's very personal. It also depends visually too. Some visual designers say, you know, I need this number, I need this number, and you can kind of make your numbers work around that. But you want to make sure first and foremost, if you're going to put a student on an instrument, don't do it just to say you have, well, I've got five snares. Yet, well, three of them can't play a triple roll. So what's the point of that? You want to make sure if you're going to put a student on an instrument, you want to set them up for success. And then you want to make sure your instrumentation is balanced out. So symbols. I, I know that when I was teaching, symbol lines were a rarity because we couldn't find instructors who could teach the art of playing symbols properly. Um, but it seems that the more advanced ensembles such as yours have a full symbol line. Do you have an instructor that's specific to the techniques and styles of playing symbols? 
We do. Yep. And uh, my symbol instructor happens to be one of my former students who was a wind player who then joined uh, winter percussion as a student. And she is back now as our symbol instructor. And you're right. The symbol line is sort of newer. It's not as traditional as it like as a traditional battery is, but it gives a great color and it adds a ton visually. Um, you know, your, your eyes just get drawn to it with a lot of the cool visuals that they can do. And it just adds a whole nother element to your visual program. And if you can't afford an additional staff member for a symbol instructor, YouTube is an amazing thing. You can learn just about anything on YouTube these days. That's great. So I've got snare players. Match grip or traditional and why? Um, there is no correct answer to that. The correct answer is whatever you feel comfortable with and whatever your students are taught. For, for us, we use match grip because it's easier to move students around from instrument to instrument. And I think it's easier to make two hands do the same exact thing rather than one do one thing and one do another. Um, a lot of groups, it just comes down to personal preference, but we definitely do the match grip. If you do the traditional grip, do you need to angle your drum on the harness? No. I mean, that's the way, you know, rudimental drumming started off years and years ago. But nowadays, you will still see some groups that play traditional grip. They'll they'll tilt the snares, but most of them just play with them flat. So more nitty gritty questions. Snare drum, top heads and bottom heads. What do you recommend? Uh, another another. Very personal question. Um, we use all the Remo products here at Norwalk High. Um, I'd have to get back to you on that one. I'd have to get back to you on that one because we've tried a couple different things over the years mm -hmm. and we've found several things that we like and we've kind of went back and forth between a, a few things over the years. So there's a lot of great products out there. It comes down to what sound you like the best and what sound your particular drums have that sound the best. So there is no right or wrong head. I mean, I could give suggestions to somebody if they had a question, but go with what you're comfortable with. So it's, I would assume that the same question, same answer would be for Tom's. Yep. Mm -hmm. Some people insist on the clear pinstripe. Some people want, you know, something else because it's different uh, timbre or color. It go and you can change that based on your show too. Yeah. Now, bass drums comes the big, the never ending question. You know, I know that you usually have a bass drum that has a graphic on it that is re related to your show. How, what do you think is the best way to dampen bass drums? So if you're going to use the printed bass heads, I believe they only come in one style and they come only in the pre-muffled. I think it's the Power Max uh, drum head. And we've never had to add extra uh, foam or muffling to those drums. But if you are going to use a more traditional drum head that does not have the muffling built into it, you know, everybody's standby is the, the air conditioning insulation foam. Some people prefer to put it on the inside. So the drum head pushes against it. Some people put it on the outside. Again, personal preference. Neither is right or wrong. It's just what you're used to, what what you do and what sound you like the best. So on your front ensemble, I assume kids start with two mallets. Do you take, from a teaching standpoint, during the course of the season, 
get everybody to go to four mallets or only the students who have the technical dexterity to do it? Or do you do it as a teaching tool? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was in high school, you know, only the best player ever got to play a four mallet part. And it might be for a couple bars or something. Now, if you're primarily a mallet percussion player, you're expected to play with four mallets. It's not a save it for the best player kind of thing anymore. It's standard. So we have exercises that we do, whether it's for marching band or indoor season. We have two mallet exercises that everybody plays, and we have four mallet exercises that everybody plays. So it's something that every every mallet player is exposed to nowadays. And, and the things that these students play now are outrageous. Sometimes when I'm sitting down writing music at the computer, I go... I think they can play it. I hope they can. And then they just shock the, you know what, out of me. And they're playing it within a couple of weeks. It's amazing. And it's way harder than I could have ever played in high school. So the the level of percussion ability and skill in the past 20 years is just skyrocketed. It's it's a totally amazing what the students can play now. Agreed, 100%. So here's the question that everybody that I talk to that's starting a winter percussion program asks electronics the uh the miking of the keyboards the use of electronics within the confines of the show uh the controlling of the of the electronics like you'll see some people sit there with a in the front and they've got somebody pulling sliders all over the place on the mixer and then you'll see somebody walk up with an ipad just nonchalantly walk up sit like three rows in front of the judges and you're watching them manipulate all the sounds from their ipad can you give us a an <laughs> overview of that concept? Because that that in itself is another art form within the art form. Uh, the big E word, the electronics. Um, I would say nowadays it's almost something you have to have. It's really not an optional thing anymore, whereas back in the day it was a little bit more optional. But now between um, synths, miking of all the acoustic instruments, samples voiceovers soundscaping it's it's kind of one of those things that you need to plan from day one as well so when you're writing your music when you're designing your show you need to design sound as well and i would recommend you you get someone on your staff or hire someone else that has the expertise to write your soundscaping for you because when you hear one ensemble that sounds just full and lush and and complete because they have that underlying soundscaping and sound effects and, and uh, colors and textures. And then you hear a group that has none of it. People sometimes don't want, don't understand why that group sounds so empty. And you want to make sure the electronics are sort of there, but never there in your face where it's taking away from everything else. Sometimes groups just have their electronics crank so high that you, it distorts everything else. So it has to be just one more layer of your toolkit when you're doing your composition and you're putting your show together. I would definitely recommend miking all your, your mallet instruments. It's, it's going to help with balancing out front ensemble to battery because otherwise your front ensemble is going to get lost. I would definitely recommend at least one synth player. I would recommend a person to be you know, the sampler guy who controls all the effects and all the soundscaping, if that can't be combined in with the synth player. And on the topic of electronics, there, there's so many things you can do. You can do wireless mixing, you can do digital mixing, you can do analog. 
teach your students how to do everything. Teach them the right, because this will save you so much money in the long run. Teach your students the right way to roll up their mic cables. It seems like such a silly thing, but it will prevent them from getting knotted up at a show when you're in a time limit. It will keep their, um, it'll make the cords last longer. Teach them exactly the, the right placement for their microphone in relationship to the resonators. Teach them how to, to work the amps and plug the speakers in and the exact angle the speakers should be in. Teach them how to get everything up and running because they should be the ones that need to do it. You see sometimes people up in stands with iPads and everything. That's good for sort of fine tuning things based on the venue that you're in. I do the same thing when we go to, to competitions, I'll have the iPad with me and it connects remotely to the mixer, but that's really just to fine tune based on the venue that you're in. Some gyms and facilities are real boomy. Some are real dry, real, some have a real high pitch echo to them. So you want to be able to fine tune your mix to get the best mix that you can based on the room that you're playing in. I would not rely on an iPad to do any scene changes or volume changes in your show because it might work perfect in your rehearsal gym when there's 10 people in there. But when you're in a, a big facility and there's a thousand people all with cell phones, guess what? You're going to lose that connection nine times out of 10. So it should be a backup just to fine tune any tune your mix, but don't rely on it. Well, I got to tell you, I, I've judged your group for many years. And the nice thing is always that when they come out, they come out very calmly, very matter of fact. Each person has their own responsibilities for their cables and their connections. And you watch them meticulously unwrap and wrap their cables. And they still, it's not like a hurried mess where you're trying to get off the field to make the minimum time. It looks like you've obviously taught them to deal within the time frame. So how do time frames affect groups that are in a competitive setting to the for your teaching of the children? Yeah. So the way I look at it is you have you have three minutes to set up, make sure everything works, and then you have to start your show. Breakdown is easy. That that's a minute. If you're running a little over time, you can always rush the breakdown part a little bit. But you have to get set up in about three, three and a half minutes, sound check, be ready to start your show. And to make that happen, you must have systems and procedures in place. Every student has a job. That job is the same every single rehearsal, every single show. Not like, oh, well, who's going to plug in the right speaker to the amp today? And who's going to plug this into here? And who's going to get the power? Everybody's got their job. Everybody does their job. Nobody does anybody else's job because you just get in the way. And the other thing that is probably as important or more than the actual show itself is having a logistics on and off rehearsal. When you get a gym space, if you're, if you're going to be a marching competitive group, dedicate, I don't know, 45 minutes at some point, just back all your equipment off, whichever direction on and off would be for your show that weekend. Okay. Someone with a stopwatch, go set up the floor, set up the props, set up all the electric uh, electronics, sound check, start the show, stop. Break it down, do it again. It has to become a routine because I've seen so many groups at world championships not make it to finals because of a timing penalty, which is something that possibly an adult could have prevented 
if they had these kind of logistics rehearsals, practicing on and off with electronics. And sometimes at rehearsal too, I'm giving away one of my secrets. I, um, I will purposely sabotage something. So it, the sound system doesn't work. And then they have like a checklist of, okay, if no sounds coming out, we need to check this. If this happens, we need to check that. If we get feedback, we need to do this because they need to be able to do it on their own. They need to be able to do it on their own. So sometimes you have to throw a little wrench in the system. And sometimes if we're doing a run through, I'll turn the electronics completely off because sometimes we rely on electronics for cues, for entrances, for visual cues. But guess what? When you're out at the championship show and, and you have to make a choice of either get an eight point penalty or try to go get the best score you can do without the electronics, you owe it to your kids to go out there and try to get the best score that you can get. So they have to be able to run their show without using any electronics, the voiceovers, anything. I was with a group a few days ago and we talked about that. The, the electronics couldn't come out because it was raining and we were rehearsing. And I said to him, but you're rehearsing half-heartedly. I said, you've got to put as much energy in because you never know if the electronics, the power could go off or what have you. So the same things you've just highlighted there for indoor percussion, is that anything different than you do when you're doing marching band, outdoor percussion? Um, nope, same thing. Same thing. Everybody's got their job. Everybody knows what to do. Where we complete, Where we compete here for marching band, there is not a strict time limit. So it's not as important as it is an indoor season where, you know, every three seconds you're over an indoor, you're going to get a penalty. Marching band's a little more lenient. So you have a little bit more time. But in marching band, sometimes there's more stuff to set up. You know, we have three shotgun microphones on the field. We have wireless microphones that we have to make sure are going. So sometimes we have extra items electronic wise that we don't use in indoor season. But but same process, practice setting it up, who does what job, how it gets rolled back up. Super, super important. So now we get done with winter percussion or we get done with marching season. We go into concert season and do those responsibilities, though there's not electronics involved, still maintain themselves as the percussionists are setting themselves up for concert. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, it's all about the culture. You know, to me, culture brings success and, and culture is a lot of things. It's getting the students to buy into the program, but also understand the finer details of the program. Like you have to make sure all your instruments are covered at the end of every rehearsal. Make sure nothing gets left out. Make sure everything stays organized and they will learn year after year after year. Hey, you didn't cover your marimba after band class. You didn't put the triangle beater away. So that way it's not something I need to be at uh, after them on. The students will do it themselves. So it's it's the culture of, of excellence and attention to detail that permeates through all, all the groups that we do which helps bring success. Well, definitely you've been successful and you've done an outstanding job. Do you have anything else you'd like to add to this about indoor percussion or being a band director in general? Sure. I think a lot of people I talk to want to start a winter percussion program, but they don't really know how to begin. Just, just do it. Just do it. Uh, when I wrote my first competitive indoor show, I, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. It was okay. It came out all right. We did fine. And the, the first year we went to Dayton, we made finals. We were like 11th. And then the next year we went to Dayton and we were like eighth in finals. And I said, I, I looked at the groups coming in first, second, and third winning medals. And I thought they were just the most amazing thing in the world saying, 
Well, you know, I'm never going to get my groups there. How, how do those guys get good every year? How do they get to that level? It'll never happen here. So we we stepped back and said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. So we just studied, 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 watched as many videos as we could, figured out why those groups that were successful, why were they successful? It's not always that they play the hardest music. In fact, sometimes they don't. But just just go for it. Don't be afraid to try it. Don't be afraid to arrange your own music. Don't be afraid to to do something you've never done before, because that's your best way to learn is by by trying to do it. And along with that, you need to decide what your goal is. Do you want to just put a group out and whatever happens, happens? Great. That's the first step for some people. Do you want to put a competitive group out and be relatively competitive in your local circuit? If that's your goal, that's great. Or do you want to put a group out that you know is going to WGI World Championships and you want to be in the top half of that finals round every year? Then that's great, too. You just have to decide based on your situation, your logistics, your students, your situation, what what your goal would be. And then as we kind of talked about earlier, make sure you have the pieces in place that you need to make that happen. If your goal is to be top half of, you know, uh, championships in Dayton of whatever class you're in, but you don't have rehearsal space, you don't have any money, you don't have any staff. Well, that might be a little bit too big of an ambitious goal right off the bat. So make sure your goals are um, make sure your goals are realistic. And I guess the last thing is remember that this is about the students. This is not about the adults. There's a lot of egos in the adult world in this activity, but it's about the students. the 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 judges don't care how much money a school has. They don't care who's on staff at a school. They don't care who wrote your book. The only thing they care about is how well the students are performing what they've been given. So set yourself up for success. Always put the students first and and give them the best possible experience they can have because if they have a great experience, they're going to tell their friends who are going to join. If they have a great experience, they're going to tell their friends and you will never have to get to a situation where Oh, geez, we, we only have 12 kids signed up for winter percussion this year. What are we going to do? That should never happen. If that becomes a situation, that's probably an adult cause situation, not a student cause situation. Well, I thank you very much for everything you've given us as insight into this. Um, if it's OK with you, if our listeners have a question, they can send our website, the growing band director. Uh, a question and we'll forward it to you and you could get back to the person if that's acceptable with you. Yeah, sure. If anybody has any questions about, about anything, I'd be glad to help them out. If it's logistics, arranging, electronics, just how do you do this? How do you overcome this? What do you do when this happens? You know, I'd be glad to help them out. Thank you very much. And what we're going to do is we're going to put a link with this podcast to one of Chris's group's performances. I, I don't remember what year rewritten was what year. Uh, 2019, 2019, just before COVID, we'll put a link in here so you can take a look and see how great a high school percussion ensemble. Chris Rivera, I thank you very much for everything you've done for us. And I, we just appreciate everything. So yeah, my pleasure. It's been fun. Best of luck with the remainder of marching season and good luck with your winter percussion season. Thanks. Appreciate it. We sincerely appreciate you taking your valuable time and listening to the Growing Band Director podcast. Your students are very lucky to have a band director like you. If you have any suggestions for episode topics or think you have an area of expertise to share on a show with us, please reach out. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Growing Band Director. See you next week.